This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. Today is June 20th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the brilliant Simon Belanger. Have you ever been to the state of Utah? Uh, no, I haven't been. The only place I've been in, out west is uh, California, just for a plane transfer, and uh, same thing for BC. Well, wait, you haven't been to BC, like, other than a layover? No, no. Oh, the furthest, Yeah, really? furthest out is Calgary. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. You're like Sam Wise <laughs> in uh, Lord of the Rings. So it's like, if I go another step, be the farthest oh. west I ever go. I mean, I've been to Asia, Europe, so yeah. I've been like, yeah. We just got to take you west. Just depend. <laughs> yeah. All right. Closer up west. All yeah. right. The listeners out west are, uh, or at least in BC, are, are saying, we're going to we're gonna get you on a flight real soon. We'll do a, a maybe a meetup out there. Uh, no, I'm, as you can see here on the video for the people on jointci.com, I'm packing here. So we got to, we're going to close all over the place. Sir, we have good amount of news to get through today. It is a Thursday release, so you know we're talking current events. Let's kick it off. Usually you go first, but I'll, I'll, I have the first one here today. Bell has cut 1,300 positions, the radio stations, and foreign bureaus in a large restructuring process. So they are shutting down or shutting down on a combination of selling nine radio stations and two foreign bureaus. I don't really know what that means, but this is largely the Bell Media Division, right? And they have been making lots of changes to, they have a huge fleet of media branches and a lot of radio that have been slowly been changing over time. And I know someone who's, who's worked at one of them as an anchor and, you know, it's just so much has changed over that that time just in the past couple of years. So this is kind of a long time coming from my kind of inside baseball knowledge of it. But this plan to adapt entails moving to a single newsroom approach. The, the company's media branch, quote, can't afford to continue operations of its various brands, such as CTV National News, BNN, CP24, it's local TV news stations and radio channels, independently of one another, said Bell, chief legal officer and regulatory officer, Robert Malcolmson. Okay, so this is confusing to me because the local stations and the news stations, the radio, I get it. I, I understand. But I'm reading this article on BNN, Bloomberg, which is a Bell Media asset. So I'm like... This is so weird reading the front cover of B&M Bloomberg being like, hey, we're getting sold and this is the news. So I thought that was strange. I get the local ones, but CTV, BNN, CP24 seem like all very large brands, especially in this area. Yeah, they, um, yeah, I was surprised. Is it the actual BNN, like the full brand, or is it just like, I think they had some BNN specific radio stations too, right? That is going with it. Okay. That's included in one of okay. the nine radio stations. So it's stations. all of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So BNN Bloomberg is, 
you know, a, a live program, but it's also a huge digital asset. I bet you they make more money off the digital asset than than live TV. That that's my guess. Probably. Yeah, I mean in Canada it's almost the de facto kind of equivalent to a CNNBC, right? That's right. I would say, I, I, I would yeah. say so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So the layoffs um, here from Bell Media, Malcolm said cuts around 3% of its total workforce. Management positions are also being slashed by 6%, so more than more than the, the total. And um, yeah, so if this, if, if this is affecting you, we are, we are here for you. I'm, I, I, I am sorry. Um, if you work at Bell Media in any of these radio divisions and you got affected by this, send us an email. We need help with the podcast. The podcast is growing and I'm sure you probably have some elite skills that would be very valuable to us. So um, I didn't plan saying this, but if you have been affected by this and you've been working in radio or at BNN Bloomberg in the media division, there's a good chance you're probably a good fit for this in a finance podcast. Um, all right, that's it, Simone. Yeah, and I know one more that uh, has been affected. I think they, they used to have a bunch of TSN radio stations, and now I think a while back they shut down the Vancouver one. I think the Edmonton one was part of this uh, uh, this announcement, and now I think they only have Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto. I think those probably perform quite well. Um, at least Montreal, Toronto. I don't know how well Ottawa performs, but uh, right, bigger markets. Bell Media owns TSN, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't see that mentioned in this press release. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that uh, the Edmonton one got, got slashed too. Oh, yeah. okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Anyways, yeah, for those into sports, but on a completely different subject here, so I guess some good news, at least for Dividend Lovers, not a Canadian name, but uh, Delta Airlines announced it was restarting its dividend after three years. The board approved a new quarterly dividend of $0.10 cents per share at the current price of Delta. That's yielding around 1%. Um, it's important to take note that Delta and other American airlines had stopped their dividends and share buybacks because it was a condition to accept federal financial aid in the U.S. when the pandemic started. And clearly the airlines needed that because volume, as we all know, in 2020 plummeted for airlines. And it didn't really hasn't gotten back to the 2019 levels until pretty much right now. So I was reading and uh, it looks like we're back to pre-pandemic levels. So a full, what, like four years at this point, uh, three years, I mean, after the pandemic started. And to put things in context as well, so Delta was paying 40 cents per share before the start of the pandemic. So clearly, you know, this is a small step towards that dividend that was pre-pandemic, not quite there yet. Um, it'll be interesting to follow because it sounds like most airlines are very bullish uh, in terms of air traffic in the upcoming years. Whereas, you know, depending on where you're looking at from the rest of the economy, uh, predictions are not necessarily as rosy. So it's interesting that they're quite bullish, uh, at least for the medium term in terms of air travel. There's been an interesting kind of trend, which is experiential spend is back in a major way. Uh, live events and travel for pleasure are you know booming. Uh, we've seen it in the, the aggregators for accommodations, the Airbnbs, the Expedias, the bookings, 
And we've also seen it for air travel. Um, and, you know, those two typically go hand in hand. We haven't seen that come back full with, with, with business travel uh, yet. But it is fascinating to see in when most people say, you know, we are probably currently in a recession or, you know, that's their prediction or we're seeing a lot of economic weakness. And you have something that is completely purely discretionary spend, like travel for pleasure, just dominating. And I think that that goes to two important things. There's one, a desire for long-term for this generation to experience and not acquire things. And number two, you were just starved of it for so long for those two years that you just have this like, you know, built up demand for it. So I'm not surprised we're seeing this come out in the numbers. When it comes to airlines, fool me once. (laughs) Fool me once, shame on me. Uh, Fool me twice. Or sorry, I messed that up. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, Because I I cannot be convinced to own any airline. Uh, Got into my head, it ain't happening. (laughs) Pull the trigger, it ain't happening. I will not be owning any of these names. Yeah, and it's it's just really interesting though. Like I think you have two forces, like you mentioned, people are starved for experiences, but at some point, you know, there's a lot of data coming out that people are still starting to draw more and more on their savings. They're not saving as much. At some point, you know, it feels like those two forces will clash together. And yes, people may prioritize experiences over goods, um, like we saw during the pandemic, but if people need to cut expenses, you know, that's going to be hit at some point. So, I mean, I just find it fascinating because you get like two kind of forces going at each other. And uh, I'll be it's something I'll just keep an eye on over the next couple of years because um, it'll be interesting. I have no idea which direction it'll go. Um, I think the airlines should be careful trying to uh, make predictions going too far out in the future. But uh, I guess, you know, they haven't. uh learn from uh, the the 2019 predictions i guess we need to host a uh remember dare in school like don't do drugs kids dare do you remember that oh we didn't i mean i went uh to school on the quebec side so we didn't we didn't oh, have you guys that. didn't have dare okay no. well many no. people will know what i'm talking <laughs> okay. about um i think it's in the u.s too like it's like a big thing anyways they, they go around they bring like a police officer and they like teach you about like don't do drugs kids literally I feel like we need a seminar. Their, their whole thing is not even once. Not even once is like the tagline for like starting to do drugs. Investing in airlines. Not even once, folks. Don't do it. Uh, you know, save yourself the brain damage. Not even once, folks. All right, let's move on to Adobe. Adobe released earnings. And I have a lot of conflicting thoughts, which you'll see. Uh, I'm like... I like this, I hate that, I like this, I hate that. So I'll talk a little bit about the results and then long-term more about the business. So in terms of the results, creative ARR. So when I say ARR, I just mean annual recurring revenue. It's the most important metric of a software as a service business. And Adobe is fully this software as a service uh, cloud business now that sells software and subscription. That pivot they did you know, over the last decade to a pure play subscription business has been 
a very effective one, a very profitable one, and makes it very sticky to uh, the recurring revenue streams. So creative annual recurring revenue, this is the Adobe Creative Cloud. This is their bread and butter of the business. It increased 7.6%. Document Cloud continues to see really good success at 17%, uh, 17.5% annual recurring revenue. The digital media business at 9.2%. Total revenue for the quarter at a record 4.82 billion, up 10% year over year. And they bought back 2.7 million shares. So, you know, barely double digits, uh, top line growth. And, um, you know, the, the market's certainly rewarding it for being that recurring software sticky revenue streams, which is fair. Last time you and I talked about Adobe stock, the stock was getting crushed. There's the $20 billion acquisition news, the threat of artificial intelligence, increased competition on the web browsers like, like, like a Figma, like a Canva, all the bad sentiment and on and on and on. And I said, hey, look, if you want to buy, if you have been wanting to buy Adobe stock, this is your chance. And, and I will chalk that one up in the win column because it traded at $275 and it is now at $500. That was not that long ago. This is October. <laughs> like it's June. Like it's not like, you know, it's not that long. And it makes you realize uh, it trades at around 30x enterprise value to EBITDA today. In 2021, the stock at 690, it was due for a correction. So as soon as this bad news hit, stock dropped like a rock, and it should have. Uh, it was nearly 50 times EV to EBITDA. And so I tweeted out, sell Adobe stock because of AI at 275. Buy Adobe stock because of AI at 500. If you hate it at 275, you're going to love it at 500. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's uh, any, any quick thoughts? I mean, no, like it just goes to show that a lot of people tend to invest with the trends. And in the next episode, we'll look at the TD investing index and um, I actually dug into it. So people will want to tune in on, uh, on Monday just to see they look at that's one of the things they'll look at sentiment and what direction people are are buying. And it's not surprising. I mean, people get all excited and right now. I don't know. It just feels like tech has had, in general, a bit of a run-up, obviously being led by those AI names that we all know, whether it's an NVIDIA, Microsoft with OpenAI, even Google has done quite well, Shopify here in Canada. It just feels like we're getting, I don't know about you, it feels like we're getting back into that uh, a bit of exuberance. The yeah, exactly. The rebubble, baby. Um, so I... You know, it's uh, it's not overly surprising. I think the market people are seeing it. It's a pendulum, right? So it gets overbought and then oversold, and then it kind of goes back and forth. And the proper valuation is probably kind of more in the middle. That's right. Yes, uh, and and over a long run, what matters here is is the business better or profitable? Have a better competitive advantage? The brighter future. Uh, moving forward, everything else in the meantime, sentiment shifts on price action so much. So just remember that like buying the stock in October when it's at its best valuation feels the worst. 
psycho- psychologically. Because that's when there's a bad narrative. That's why the stock is being sold off. So when you go against the grain and buy the best valuation is when it often feels the worst in your stomach. And um, that's why it's very important to not invest with, with emotion. All right. So they're AI products. So they came out with this this demo. Uh, did you see any of the demos that they posted? That no, you I can, haven't. Like, okay. So basically, for, for those who haven't seen it, for you, it's they, they show like a, a bicyclist, fo- a photo of a bicyclist on the road inside of Photoshop. And then they pull up the AI editor and they say, remove the yellow lines on the road and it'll remove it. And you like oh. say like, change the color of the sky. It'll do it. Like, or like, there's another one they showed where it's like, you type in like, extend the bottom of it to show a lake underneath this mountain. And it's beautiful. And then I saw someone on YouTube try those same prompts and it was not as good at all. <laughs> it had to be in a controlled environment, I guess. Yeah, it was not like, it's not that it wasn't cool. It's just, it, it sure was not as good as that demo. Like, not even close, I would say. I would say like 20% as good as that demo. So I get the vision and I'm sure it's going to keep getting better. But that demo is was such a rug pull because everyone was talking about how amazing it is. And I don't think they had ever tried it yet. <laughs> so it's always... Yeah, it's always important to do your own uh, little due diligence via YouTube. Yeah, they need to do like Google with Baird and then mess up the demo, but then impress people afterwards. That they, that's what they need to do, not the opposite. That's right, yes. Because, yeah, you can create a lot of hype with that demo video and show how amazing it is. And then if they don't have that magical experience on their first prompt, like... You had this sign up, but it, it's a useless sign up because it instant churn and bad. It, instead of nailing it or trying to get it better and then, you know, really, or at least setting expectations, right? Like what you're kind of hinting at. Um, all right. So that's the product. In terms of AI image generation with the creative cloud and video generation, they have a distinct advantage. They own a lot of unique assets and like stock fo- imagery and photos and, and videos. And they have the distribution inside the creative cloud. But this this all is very bullish. But it doesn't mean they can out-execute the models like MidJourney, which, for example, is fantastic and extremely advanced and, and just seems to have that, that sauce right now. Like on MidJourney V4, it's, it's mesmerizing like how far it's come so fast. And for the business here today, the valuation went from cheap to expensive really quick. And that's why it, you know, it felt the most bombed out in October and the most uncomfortable. And that's when you could map out a really good IRR from there. Valuation multiples aside, the business is probably pretty well set up to keep growing that subscription base over time. But right now it's at high single digits on the Creative Cloud ARR. And they do have that underlying competition threat and this like Figma deal looming over its head. I don't think the narrative has gotten a whole lot better than it was, you know, $250 ago on the stock. 
And so I don't expect it, the creative cloud to be growing at this 25% compound annual growth rate that it's maintained over the last few years since 2015, probably closer to where it is now at high single digits, which is fine. But at the multiple, I'm not so sure about that. The document cloud business is going faster than I thought it would. It's gone from a $265 million run rate to $2.5 billion run rate since 2014. So that's that's clutch. I mean, they already had the PDF ecosystem, right? And so uh, they, they didn't want DocuSign to completely eat their lunch. As you can tell, I have a lot of conflicting opinions about the stock today. Uh, whereas just last year, sitting at 17 times forward earnings, you could see a really nice path to forward returns. The problem here is I think that most of that IRR came in 10 months. And so for me, the valuation, I, I think, is a little frothy today. Yeah. And one thing I would also keep an eye on for people interested or who own Adobe, um, it's the margins. So the gross margins have held pretty steady, but the operating margins have been trending down over the last couple of years. Uh, they kind of peaked in 2021 and then it's been kind of a bit of a slow trend down. Definitely would want that to stabilize as well because it's not like they're growing. They're not going to be a a high, high growth stock, right? I think it's going to be more steady growth. And then obviously there's potential disruptions coming in the space too, whether it happens or not. Um, but yeah, that's another thing I would keep an eye on. And look, this Adobe, uh, this uh, Figma deal, it's a huge, obviously overpaid now after multiple you know, took the slingshot back. But... That's a really important deal for them to move to a collaborative cloud first browser experience for the dot for the for the creative cloud. Like it's it's more than just buying their revenue. It's a lot more than that. Um, and so that threat still looms over their head. If this, you know, if this doesn't go through, you know, and, and they, they pull out of it or something, that's still a concern. Um, and so I, I don't think that that's changed and, and the stocks clearly 2x basically from that point. So, yeah. And on, on that Figma deal, I just, uh, Googled quickly Adobe Figma cause I wanted to see when they had announced the deal, which was in September of 2022, which I think that's why they were criticized quite a bit because the, the valuation at the time that they paid and tech valuations were already like starting to get smashed and coming down. But then to add to that, um, I guess it's really recent, the last like 12 hours is that apparently you EU regulators are looking at the deal and it could be under threat from the European Union as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's getting all the scrutiny. <laughs> um, it's getting all the scrutiny. You're right. When that deal got announced, the stock got crushed because it was like, hey, Adobe, it's not last year. You know, the, we were well into the fall of 22 when SaaS multiples had got cut in half from the November of 21. And it was like, you know, uh, <laughs> hey, Adobe, uh, you realize it's not September 2021 anymore, right? So uh, that, they definitely got a lot of scrutiny from here. I don't, I don't know if this deal is going to go through. It's just <laughs> the regulators don't seem to like it very much. Yeah, and it seems now like if the EU has an issue with it, 
it sounds like the Americans usually are not that far behind because we saw that with the Activision Blizzard and Microsoft deal. Um, it's same kind of thing happened, right? The EU or the UK started raising concerns and now the US are starting to raise concerns. So um, I don't know, it could be uh, telling us, you know, in terms of what's coming ahead, but uh, something to keep in mind <laughs> for anyone interested in the name. What is going on with Activision and Microsoft? I don't like, think the deal is going to go through. Yeah. I'm just looking here. Like, I haven't checked up I, on it recently. Me neither. Yeah. And it looks like it's just stalled in. It's just in reverse, essentially. Like, as, as soon as it's stalling these deals, like, not moving forward is actually the same as moving backward with these deals. And it's uh, it's just hung up. It looks like the U.S. judge has temporarily blocked it as of June 13th. Oh, so recently. <laughs> Late on Tuesday, June 13th, a U.S. judge temporarily granted the FTC's request for a block on Microsoft's act acquisition of Activision Blizzard. According to Reuters, Microsoft could theoretically have closed the deal as early as Friday, June 16th, but will now have to wait for, for hearings uh, next week in San Francisco. Dude, this is, this is like I fell asleep so many yeah. months and years ago with this deal uh wake me up when it's when it's done yeah and is it or, really or worth not the, done <laughs> yeah is it really worth the trouble too for activision blizzard and microsoft or let's just say microsoft at that point because even if the deal gets approved there's obviously going to be so many strings attached from regulators to do this not do that and all these different uh conditions if they approve the deal so i don't even know at this point whether you know they, maybe they're just hoping that the deal gets nixed. Yeah, like, I don't know how they go about this this, this, this breakup. It's like, it's not me, it's you. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not me, it's you. It's, it's not you, it's me. And how I don't like you. <laughs> the easiest breakup. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess now anything else to add for Adobe or we'll move on to uh, the big news in the crypto No, world? let's talk about my tinfoil hat here. Okay, it's growing, huh? Yeah, the tinfoil hat, you can like kind of hear it crinkling above my head at the yeah. moment. So um, for those of you who follow the Bitcoin space, and even if you don't, this was like pretty big news that came out. I think it was Friday last week. So BlackRock, uh, news came out that BlackRock was applying for a spot Bitcoin ETF in the US. And I'll give some historical context and then give my thoughts on what's happening as well. So last week, news came out that BlackRock had submitted a spot Bitcoin ETF application to the SEC, which is the Securities Exchange Commission, the US for those who are new to the podcast if approved the etf would be named the iShares bitcoin trust it is it would still be an etf it's just a slightly different structure than the traditional etf but it would function the same way now some of you might be listening and thinking hey Aren't there already Bitcoin's ETFs? And you would be correct. There are. Um, there are Bitcoin ETFs, but there are f they are futures ETFs in the U.S. So this means that the ETF trades based off of the CME's future Bitcoin contract, which is a type of derivative because it gets its value derived from the underlying asset, which would be the price of Bitcoin here. And in terms of spot Bitcoin ETFs, this would be ETFs that hold the Bitcoin actually in cold storage for the most part. So it follows the 
price of Bitcoin very closely. And there are several spot Bitcoin ETFs in Canada and around the world, but there are none in the US. And a spot Bitcoin ETFs, like I said, would be, I think it would be a pretty big change game changer in the US because it would open it up to a lot of investors but there's a lot of nuances here to take into account so first the SEC has long been denying spot Bitcoin ETFs the first application was done by the Winklevoss twins in 2013 Um, for those not aware the Winklevoss twins are behind the crypto exchange Gemini and they're very influential in the crypto and uh, Bitcoin space so there's been several applications since 2013. So in October of 2021, the SEC actually approved the first Bitcoin's futures ETF. So it was the ProShares Bitcoin ETF, which trades under the ticker BITO. The SEC's reasoning behind not approving the spot Bitcoin ETF is that the price of Bitcoin can be manipulated since it transacts on unregulated exchanges, whereas the futures ETFs use the product traded on the regulated CME, and CME is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, It's the, I guess, the largest derivative exchange in the US, and the crypto industry has long criticized this because the futures contracts are still ultimately based on the current price of Bitcoin, the future expectation of the price of Bitcoin. So it's a bit bizarre that the SEC would use this reasoning with approving the futures contract, but not the spot Bitcoin, uh, uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. And now in recent development, Grayscale, the operator of GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, is currently in court with the SEC. Grayscale is suing the SEC because of the refusal to allow them to convert GBTC into a spot Bitcoin ETF. And from what I understand, a decision by the courts is expected at some point before the end of 2023. And for those not aware, GBTC owns around 637,000 Bitcoin, which is slightly more than 3% of the total supply of Bitcoin of 21 million. Obviously, the total end game supply, if you like, They've not all been uh, um, mined so far. So GBTC does have a whole lot of Bitcoin (laughs) under its umbrella. And there's a few things to know regarding the BlackRock Bitcoin application. First, the SEC denied Fidelity spot Bitcoin ETF application in early 2022. For those not aware, Fidelity may is smaller than BlackRock, but they still have well over $4 trillion in asset under management. So they're by no means a small player. They're actually a very large player in the asset management space. But Fidelity has also been more kind of open to the crypto space. So, you know, let's take that into account here. BlackRock has made historically 576 ETF applications to the SEC in the U.S., And only one, yes, I'm repeating that, only one has been uh, not approved or denied by the SEC. Do you know what it was? No, I don't know what it was. So if you want to look that up, that'd be be interesting. I'll look it up. It must have been a vegan ETF. Could be, could be. (laughs) But regardless, I mean, all that to say that BlackRock, they typically don't submit an application for an ETF unless they think it's going to be approved. Now, at the GBTC SEC hearing that I just referenced a few minutes ago, judges seem to be quite critical of the SEC's decision to deny the spot Bitcoin ETF application from Grayscale uh, when they were alluding to the uh, Grayscale reasoning in terms of doesn't make sense that 
the SEC would apply the approve the futures ETF, but not the spot Bitcoin ETF, because ultimately they reference the same price action, and there could also be the same manipulation that the SEC is apparently afraid of. So it's possible that BlackRock is anticipating that the courts will rule against the SEC on that matter, and they're just lining themselves up to be well positioned there. Did you find out who it was, by the way? The only thing I have here is this was in 2014 and the proposed ETF was characterized by its non-transparent nature, which would have hidden its holdings from investors akin to a blind trust. Moreover, Shepard, Smith, Edwards, and Kanta, S-S-E-K, noted that this ETF did not provide insurance that its trading would be aligned with the net asset value. What is it? <laughs> what is okay. it? So it's a transparency issue that they got denied on. But it, okay. what was the ETF? Yeah. Anyways, I'll, I'll keep going and then and at the end, let me know if you I'll found keep, anything else. I'll keep, but, I'll keep digging, but it's, it, yeah. BlackRock has, you know, removed all, all knowledge of it from the internet. Yeah, so Coinbase would be the custodian for the BlackRock ETF, which is interesting because it could potentially cannibalize Coinbase's business, which they make by trading fees. Uh, because BlackRock, yes, they would pay Coinbase to be the custodian, but that would most likely be much smaller in terms of fees than what they get from their clients uh, trading Bitcoin. And there is a surveillance sharing agreement in the application, which should alleviate concerns of a potential price manipulation so blackrock put that in there there's other thing in the crypto space that i looked at but i think some of them uh, people were pointing out to the uh the filing saying that it you know some of the uh, conditions for example if there's a bitcoin fork that blackrock could decide you know which fork to go towards to it might not be the actual original Bitcoin protocol and so on. But I think a lot of it too is um, there's just a lot of legal elements to these filings and asset managers definitely want to protect themselves. So whether you believe one side or the other, and like you said, you know, you're more like, you know, maybe you have a tinfoil ad and you're more skeptical about the SEC's intention. I'll leave that to people to decide. But there's always, you know, you have to keep in mind there's tends to be two sides to each thing. Now, a couple more things here in terms of my takes is BlackRock, like I mentioned, they don't lose very often. Um, so I think if they're doing this, it's because they think there's a very high chance of the ETF being approved by the SEC. They could be trying to send a message to the SEC and politicians that have been anti-crypto in the U.S. without naming any names. But and just tell them that Bitcoin and is here to stay and it's not going away and that the U.S. needs to have some regulatory framework on this because BlackRock and other asset managers like Fidelities want to get into this space and TradFi or traditional finance definitely wants a share of this pie. And BlackRock has also big, uh, been a big proponent of the ESG push in investing, which everyone knows we've been pretty critical about, uh, mostly because it tends to be more of a marketing take, at least that's my opinion. And when they put their weight on the scale, people in power take note. So that's something BlackRock has been kind of pushing for. And the reason why they have so much influence is all that money that goes into these ETFs, uh, at least for public company, it makes BlackRock oftentimes the largest shareholder in terms of percentage of holdings for the shares of a company. Um, I do find it odd that at the same time, BlackRock 
does this uh, because they've been... It's kind of weird that BlackRock is putting this forward when they've been, you know, big on the ESG front, yet one of the big criticism of Bitcoin from its opponents is that there's a lot of energy consumption. So either BlackRock doesn't agree with that concern or uh, they just don't care. So I don't know which way it is. And then the last thing, the timing is really interesting because it also comes as the SEC is cracking down on the US crypto industry. And like I said, without getting into conspiracies, many in the crypto space think that it might be part of a playbook to get traditional finance in control of the crypto space and not those crypto native companies like even a coinbase for example that's been there and is focusing on crypto and kind of getting those out and making sure traditional finance has a, a stronghold on on this space they at one point hit 10 trillion of aum uh i think i mean i can look on stratosphere at that at that point i recall the etf aum was about three and a half trillion. That sounds so I, about right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can I can look that up quickly. But the the thing is here is like you're right. They they have they're just kind of like the de facto in the in the industry, them and Vanguard. And so they kind of just always get their way. And now this is like the timing of it is like the SEC is like, really? <laughs> they're probably like, you're kidding, right? Uh, I never did find what the unapproved DTF was because Google's algorithm favors new content so much. And there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of articles being written right now about this Bitcoin ETF being, being filed by BlackRock. So I don't know if I'm ever going to find it, but um, no, I don't have anything to add more than that. Clearly, clearly this is a, a hot topic for the SEC. Clearly one that, they need to have alignment on or else we just go in this never-ending cycle about its relationship with the SEC. But it's yeah. messy and I don't see it being solved very quickly. Yeah, and BlackRock, I mean, people listen, right? When BlackRock does something and I'm sure they they lobby quite a bit uh, in Washington too. So, I mean, it could be from, a, you know, if you own Bitcoin... I mean, I think there's pros and cons here. Obviously, it would increase demand because it would make Bitcoin available to a lot of U.S. investors. Not that they can't with uh, the U.S. traded ones in Canada and other countries, but it's much easier for U.S. investors to buy a U.S. Bitcoin ETF than it would from other countries. So it will probably open that up and probably also open up some... Um, you know, for retirement accounts, I'm assuming a lot of those would be eligible for retirement accounts. A lot of money could be potentially be poured into uh, Bitcoin ETFs and that would increase demand and most likely impact the, the price of Bitcoin. Um, so that's, you know, the potential impact it could have. But again, I think nothing really, in my opinion, uh, is a good alternative versus actually owning your own bitcoin uh there are some positives and disadvantages to each and etfs makes it very easy but um that's kind of my stance on it because i want to control my own bitcoin i have here on the screen blackrock iShares etf assets under management so it's, it's at about 3.1 trillion today it peaked at about 3.26 trillion 
in, for ETFs. Yeah. Yeah, for ETFs in December of 2021, total AUM, uh, I, I believe, peaked at about 10 trillion, which is kind of absurd to think about. Look at the growth, though. Like in December of 12, iShares had 534 billion AUM. That compounded at well over 20% to. 3.2 trillion in December 21. And now we're seeing, I mean, I think I was talking about this last week is uh, all the, all the inflows from retail inflows from retail are at all time highs right now. It's, it's yeah. surpassed the, the, the 21 peak. Yeah. And I'll, I'll actually be touching on that. Um, not this week, but the following week. So I'm working on a segment uh, based on the uh, a report that National Bank does for ETFs in Canada. And uh, just a little preview, it does align with what you're saying is uh, ETF inflows is quite high and has been quite high, at least in Canada, since the beginning of the year. And um, I won't spoil it, but um, it's interesting the different asset classes that people are putting money into. And you'll probably be surprised by some of the ones that are doing well versus some of the ones that aren't. I, you have, you've caught my attention. You've said all <laughs> the right things. You've caught my attention. All right, last uh, topic here you have for us. Yeah, last topic. So just a quick one here. So for those who've been listening since the beginning of the year, you know I started a little uh, ETF project. Um, it's just to encourage people who don't have a lot of money to invest every single month, just to show them that even if you invest as little as $50 a month, you can still uh, do well long term and that even smaller amounts of money can actually, you know, make a pretty big difference over long periods of time. So what I'm doing is I'm putting $50 a month towards the uh, VQT ETF. It's a broad-based index ETF, uh, very low fees. And it's also, I'll just note that it's also a viable avenue if you're looking to pick your own stocks um, to use something like CDRs that we talked about recently uh, because they offer it at a low cost. But the only caution I would say is that with such a small amount, you'll want to make sure that you have zero commission, at least for purchasing. Um, because if you have a five or ten dollar fee, obviously that's going to eat massively into your return. So you want to make sure, at least for purchasing, you don't have any costs. So, so far since the beginning of the year, 50 bucks a month, I invested a little more, $308. The reason is that uh, what I do is I'll buy a share, which is typically uh, of the ETF, which is typically around like 33. $34 and the remaining amount I'll roll it over for the next month and then usually what happens is the next month I just I'm just shy of being able to buy two shares so to not make it too complicated and rolling over everything you know if I'm a couple dollars away I'll still buy the two shares so that's why I should have done the iShares one it's only $26 and then you can yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, obviously it's not, uh, you know, it's not a huge difference. Uh, if you're investing $50, uh, chances are you can afford $51 uh, a month or $52. But so far I invested $308 and my returns have been 
1.27%. I know it's not crazy returns. It's because it's a very well diversified index fund. It's not specifically US or Canada. It's a, a broad based index fund for holdings around the world. Uh, but I'll keep people posted. I'm obviously I'm happy I'm making a little bit of money on it. But it's an easy way to get some broad based exposure. And even if you're younger, you don't have that much money, uh, you can follow along with me or pick another index ETF that you like or potentially uh, even CDRs if you have a zero dollar commission uh, for purchases. I love this because it basically shuts down the notion that you can't invest, especially with the no commission on buying ETFs. Like there's no fees associated with this. You're going to pay what, like eight basis points on your ETF there? Like less than that maybe? Yeah, they're cents. It's like, I can't remember exactly what they are, but they're very, very low. They're yeah. so low. And so there's basically, we'll call it zero fees, the free buy on the ETF, that six basis points or whatever it is. And you get all of the market returns of the index you're invested in. This one is a broad-based global equity fund. And you just needed $35 or whatever the share price was a month. That's very achievable for almost everyone. Um, and, and that's why I love this little project. It's, it's not for you to make money. See, well, it's... Simone's rich on Bitcoin. He doesn't need this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite yet. Yeah. Simone's laughing, dude. Um, All jokes aside, this is uh, is a good project to kind of show people, look, you don't need a whole lot to get started. And it will accumulate to more than you ever expect with enough time. It just requires a lot of time. And properly managed expectations that the market goes up, it goes down, it goes sideways, but over the long run, it compounds. All right. Thanks, folks, for listening. We appreciate you very much. For those folks we'll see in person in less than a month, I'm very excited to see you guys. And uh, have a great rest of your day, great rest of your week. We'll see you in a few days. If you have not checked out finchat.io, or stratosphere.io. One thing I want to start probably telling y'all on the podcast here for Stratosphere is prices are doubling because we are now bringing in institutional data quality from Capital IQ. So your boy's spending some serious cash on the data, all right? It's not cheap, Simon. <laughs> you should buy S&P stock because it is absurd. Uh, it's a, your boy ain't uh, cheaping out on the data quality. And, and given that it's a little bit more of an institutional product and we have to raise the prices, but we're going to grandfather you in. So you have about two and a half, three weeks, official date, not done yet for my dev team, but two, three weeks before prices tri- increase dramatically on Stratosphere. So if you want to get grandfathered in, you can buy a subscription to Pro basically for half price today. Roughly half price, not quite, but roughly. We'll see you in a few days. Take care, everybody. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.